You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. to the first episode of 2022. My name is Taylor Molia. I'm the new Agrarian Program Colorado Manager. Today, our guest is Elena miller Turkile. She is a rancher, a mom, and a generational farmer at Cactus Hill Farm in La Jara, Colorado. Their farm sells wool products. Um, her and her dad raise, and her husband raise alfalfa and are just getting into direct market lamb and whole grains. Elena and I bonded pretty much immediately over sheep and her sense of humor is so infectious. We had an awesome conversation. She's gonna go over what it takes to raise wool sheep, what it's like to be a mom in ranching, and she has wonderful advice for those getting into the ranching industry. So thank you so much to Elena for being a guest today. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Elena, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I'm so excited to get to know you. First off, we'll just kind of jump right into it. Can you tell me where you're calling from and what is the last book you read? Yeah, so I'm actually calling from this little tiny town that nobody's ever heard of called Capulín, Colorado. It's uh, very, very southern. We're almost in New Mexico. We're close to Antonito, which some people have heard of, um, a little bit south of Alamosa. So I'm calling from my my sunroom <laughs> on my couch. So Zoom and all these great digital ways are so fun because who knows? Who knows? Um, the last book I read, uh, I actually just finished. I am I have not been reading very much recently. <laughs> I'm working on The Alchemist, but I'm trying to read it in Spanish, which I do speak Spanish, but I don't read it very well. So it's been an experiment. Um, but I actually just read uh, Gloria Alzaldúa's book, the La Frontera, the New Mestiza. And it was an awesome book. So I definitely recommend it. Definitely. It's about the history of, well, I I resonated with a lot of it because it's about the Hispanic history of the Southwest of she's from Texas, but also very much similar to a lot of my family historic history and kind of their experience being in the United States. And it was really good. For some reason, The Alchemist, too, is coming up a lot. I, I, I don't know if there's a, some kind of resurgence, but I've heard several people say that lately. So I got I to gotta get on that train. So tell us about growing up on your family ranch, Cactus Hill Farm. What does the business look like today? Like, tell me all about it. So, yeah, so I was kind of referencing my family, basically, that, you know, one of the things that I would love to see in history books someday is some more accurate representations of history, of course. I do have to say the first people here and to acknowledge and deeply honor and also to acknowledge the the history and the tragic history. But the Native Americans were here first. Um, I think in this area we had Southern Ute. We also had Navajo um, and Apache. And so just to honor that, I... I, I feel like honoring is not enough. And someday I hope we can move past that and even get to where we can maybe tell a different story. But um, yeah, so after, um, so when it was still part of Mexico, 
the Mexican government realized that they were having kind of not strained relations, but very distant relations with their northern territories. And they wanted to kind of um, help build that relationship. So they opened up parts of Colorado and northern New Mexico to settlers who were already in the Americas, but um, to move further north. So my family basically moved in during that time, uh, 1850s, 1860s. And then, of course, it became the United States. So I always say, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. We stayed in one place and we were Spanish citizens and then became Mexican citizens and then became U.S. citizens without ever moving. Um, and then the U.S. government honored, to a degree, a lot of those old, because um, they were they were called land grants. Um, unfortunately, we did lose most of the land that was part of that. So there's definitely like some complicated history there. Uh, but my family was able to, probably because they had already established their holdings, they were able to retain the original homestead, which now does not belong to my family. It belongs to another family <laughs> that's somehow distantly related. But my family's been in the area since then and actually has been sheep people the whole time, except for my dad when we were young. He sold the sheep that my grandpa owned and then when I got back from college, I was like, we should buy sheep. And he was like, oh, no, honey, you don't want to buy sheep. And uh, after a lot of convincing and kind of projecting some different business plans that were a little different than like what they were using back when they had sheep, uh, we went back into the sheep business. So that is what I do. Personally, I raise sheep. And then we also do raise organic alfalfa. We we are kind of branching out into some organic grains right now. We have not quite gotten through that door yet, but we're working on it, probably working on some value-added producer grants and stuff like that to get there. And um, I also do a small, like, one to two-acre vegetable garden that we sell at the farmer's market because it works really well with, like, selling the lamb meat, selling some vegetables, and then also selling the wool. So um, mostly... We do, we do farm sales, but I do prefer to have a little more control just because I always have a mess and I'm like, please don't come over. <laughs> You're going to see the apocalypse and nobody wants to see that. So I do sell at fiber shows. There's several around the area. The Southwest is really famous. And that's cool too, because it kind of ties in with my own cultural history uh, for fiber art. And so I sell at fiber shows. I also do have a website, cactushillfarm.com. And we are on Instagram and Facebook as well, Cactus Hill farm. So self-promotion there. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of like what the business looks like today. We have a lot of, one of the things as, as um, we use the old historical acequias that my family established back in the 1850s, 1860s. And because of that and the drought and the changes in the climate, we have had years, like over 10 years of of water shortages. And so the sheep are really great because we've moved a lot of our alfalfa production into perennial pastures, which use a lot less water, and then basically just move the sheep around different places during the summer. And then, you know, we can graze them out on Chico land and stuff like that and kind of moving them around there and keeping them fed that way. So that's kind of what it looks like. It's a it's a neat little farm. It's it's cute. Yeah. It's not super small. It's not super big. It's somewhere in the middle. And um, like I said, it is mostly irrigated with uh, ditch water. So that's a lot of what we do. Um, and I don't know if that's answering the question. But yeah, a lot of our summer is spent irrigating and chasing sheep. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about uh, your what kind of since your grandfather that line, that lineage of sheep kind of was 
stopped with your father and then you started it up again. Tell me what kind of historically what breed you guys raised and then what breed you chose to raise on your own. I don't actually know, like going back further than my grandfather. I don't know because my great grandfather and my great great grandfather, they all had sheep. I'm not sure what breeds they have because I've asked some of my, I asked my grandma and they just, they just had sheep. That's what they say. <laughs> but I gather from things I've read and not actually heard directly from my family that many of the Hispano settlers brought churro sheep and also merinos. And I do think that as things modernize, they moved more towards Colombia and Rambouillet because they're um, a really good range sheep because historically, it's changing now, but historically, all the sheep herders would have their, their bunch down in the valley where I live. And then in the summer, they would move them up into the mountains and graze up in the in the high country. And so that was kind of like the traditional way. And so they needed a breed that, that's why the Rambouillet was so suited because it was hardy and it could handle um, like cold and also was like really efficient with food. Wasn't, it's not a really big breed. So it was manageable like in the high country and stuff like that. And then it also produced wool because, you know, historically wool was such an important thing for clothing. And Rambouillet does produce like a medium to good quality. It can actually be very high quality depending on the breeding of wool. So, um, my grandfather, he had, uh, I think all sheep herders and maybe, I don't know about cow. I don't know much about, um, cattle ranching to be honest, but at least from what I've seen with sheep herders, they do tend to move through breeds sometimes. So I know my grandfather had Rambouillet. Um, then he definitely did have some Columbia. I think at one point he experimented with Polypay for a little bit. So I think they kind of, I've done the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this different Ram and see what happens. And sometimes a hybrid can be such a even though it isn't a purebred, it can be such a awesome asset because it can have like qualities of both and be a little bit tougher. So it's always good to, to experiment. But that's kind of what my grandfather had. So, um, so as I got into sheep, I definitely did want to go with soft stuff because I like soft wearable things. So I did go get some merinos. But then I also do strongly believe that as a rancher, it is your responsibility to try to preserve herds, um, breeds that maybe are in trouble or maybe have qualities that aren't being appreciated more in the commercial side. So I do have some CVM, which is a, <laughs> it's called a California variegated mutant. And everyone laughs. They're like, you have mutant sheep, <laughs> which is true. Um, but basically it's a, it's a Romadale sheep, which is a white sheep, but then it has a gene that makes it turn different colors. So you can get like uh, a lot of different browns and grays and blacks out of this breed. So that's been fun to experiment with. Um, I've been crossing them with Merino because I want to have kind of that soft side, but I also really want to get the natural colors. Um, and then I also did go after like a bunch of really fun <laughs> heritage breeds. I have Wensleydale, which is like a long curly sheep, um, BFL, which is also long and curly and has, I always think they look so funny because they have like big perky ears and like this very Roman nose and they almost look like they have like black eyeliner around their eyes usually. Um, and I also have, I have like so many different breeds that sometimes I can't even keep track of it. Sometimes I have some Cotswold. Um, I definitely have some Wensleydales, some BFLs. I have two Tunis randomly and Tunis are, <laughs> I honestly don't know anything about Tunis. They, they're just like two Tunis sheep randomly in the middle of the bunch. Um, and then, oh my gosh, what else do I have? 
Yeah, tees water. I have a few tees water. So I kind of went for like what people were asking me for at fiber shows. I really want high quality. So trying to breed for like um, the best quality wool for the long wools, you really want high luster. So you want it really shiny and then you want it nice and strong. And then for the merinos, of course, you want it fine, but you also want it strong. Every wool, you have to make sure because it is... um, You want to make sure that your wool isn't going to break when it's getting spun or made into yarn. So that's kind of, I've, (laughs) I do definitely have attention problems sometimes. And I know that's partially why my herd is such a mixed bunch, but I actually think there's a lot of benefits because, um, for example, one year I had a disease come through where a lot of the lambs were aborting, the ewes were aborting their lambs. But it was interesting because not all the breeds were affected. And so I was really glad to have that diversity because it seemed like I lost I lost all the tease waters, which was really, really sad. But most of my merinos were fine. My CVMs were fine. And so it was really interesting because it kind of like went down a breed line and which was hard for losing that entire generation. But it could have been much worse. I could have lost like the whole bunch if they'd all been more genetically similar. So I do think diversity is really important. Um, it's important in the plant world. And I think it's also important in the livestock world. So yeah, tell me more about the name of the farm and ranch Cactus Hill Farm. And tell me more about your vision behind it, you know, as you've kind of taken it on as your own and, and your, your generation and the next generation, your kids, tell me more about the history of the name, but also your sort of management philosophy and your vision behind what you want it to be. The name Cactus Hill Farm, my grandmother gave the farm the name. And I think my dad and I, we've had some issues with the name, actually. We had um, some inheritance issues where, so when my grandmother passed, she kind of wrote her will where it made it very difficult for us to own the whole farm. We had some, you know, we had to do a buyout of an uncle and stuff. So the name was kind of up for debate. You know, should we keep it? Should we not? Should we start over? Um, I felt like it was really important because we are a generational farm to an- honor our ancestors, honor the people that worked so hard to keep the farm alive and in our family. Um, there is a part of me also, though, I recognize that my grandmother as a Hispanic woman was definitely at the time in her generation there was definitely like a really strong movement towards assimilating people that were from a different culture. And so she was definitely like, she was hit in school for speaking Spanish. She, she actually like didn't um, want to speak English until she could speak it without an accent because it was such a big deal then to have an accent and to be identified as Hispanic. It was much easier for her, I think, to like pass as white and not to be kind of called out that way. Um, I think like there was a lot of generational, violence that happened in that era where society was education and kind of what the children were being told was that there was something wrong with being Hispanic. They needed to change. They needed to be more assimilated. And so, so part of me like loves the name, but also part of me really wants to give it a Spanish name to honor (laughs) that, that history, um, to honor my own history And so I kind of, I love the name. It's cute, but there's a part of me that's like, hmm, maybe we'll see. We'll see. But anyway, so yeah, so that's the name. Right now, my dad and I are running the farm together. I definitely am more on the livestock side. He's definitely more on like the crop management side. This year, we're going to switch things up a little bit where I'm going to be running about half the farm and then he's going to be running the other half. So that'll be an experiment, especially since I'm having a kid in May. Uh, So we'll see how this goes. But I think that's kind of like 
trying to do like a soft handoff, I guess, of the business so that it's not just like tomorrow I wake up and I'm the main farmer. Um, And so that's kind of what we're working on right now. As far as my vision for the farm, one of the things that I love about my dad and about the history of the farm, my dad has has really worked towards enhancing and restoring the land. We did a big river, river restoration project back in the, in the, well, when was it? 2000s. Yeah. Where we uh, put back in some meanders with rocks and planted a bunch of trees and, and really helped bring back like some riparian areas and some wetlands that hadn't, that had been damaged through mining and also through a river uh, straightening project that happened in the seventies. And so my dad also has like worked really extensively with the USDA and then RCS to do like green buffers to uh, help with moving towards organic, which now we are certified organic to do a whole bunch of different programs to like help with beneficials and also improve our soil health. We've used some green manures. We've also been using compost for years and manure now that we have the sheep. So I think that's something really cool that my dad has always been really pushing towards. We, we are, we are, um, how would I say? Um, I don't want to use the word victim because that's not the right word. We are definitely suffering still from a major mining disaster that happened, um, back starting in the 1970s, ending in the 1990s that really, it killed the river, polluted the the water and then therefore the soil since we're putting the water on the soil And so we've just been trying to work through a lot of those issues and my parents have been really involved in that. So I love that history of the farm of advocating for our environmental system that we all live in and that we all have to live within the limits of. And so I think I'd love to continue that ethic. I really would like to continue that idea that like we are stewards and we are meant to improve what we're we're meant to improve the land. I'm I'm really interested. I'm one of the big fears and not fears but also recognizing that it's happening is climate change is affecting us already today. And so how do we move forward with more resilience but also not just surviving, but how do we do better? You know, how do we learn how to um take better care of our soils, help with erosion, deal with carbon because, you know, Soils can be such a huge way to sequester carbon that I think we've just, we've, we've focused on like these big technology solutions, but actually like some of these older technology solutions like composting and putting back organic matter can be so huge in how to move forward as um, in agriculture and as a nation and a world facing um, major changes in our environment. So those are some of the things I think about. I have a dream (laughs) that someday I always love education. I love working with young people. That's why I'm so excited to be working with the Kavira Coalition because I'm excited to get some young people out on the farm. But I really would love to to foster the next generation of stewards for for the land. And that includes my own children, but also maybe people that don't have the opportunity to grow up on a farm and maybe would love to just learn. Because I've met some amazing people that they're like, I never touched a plant or an animal and now they're like the most amazing farmers that you'll ever meet so I think it would be awesome down the line to be able to connect with those things and then also to connect with like there's so many cool ideas happening out there I love the idea of like sustainable textiles and so some of my dream for the farm is kind of like to be able to tie into 
what a lot of other amazing people are doing. So that's kind of vague, but we shall see how it uh, blossoms um, going into the future. I think there's always like that. You have to like make sure your base is good before you can move forward. And I think that's where I am right now. It's just like trying to build that really strong business base where I know the farm is sustainable um, environmentally and also economically and that I can manage it all. And then hopefully building from there, because I do feel like as a generational farm, we have such an opportunity to um, tell a different story, to tell a different story about the history of the Southwest, and then hopefully to like help connect some resources. Yeah, you definitely have to have that bigger vision, you know, because ranching can get you down. So it's that bigger vision that keeps you going. So I feel that a lot from you. you. You have a lot of passion for what you're doing and a lot of recognition that you you grew up in this lifestyle, but also you've worked with people that had no background and kind of took them under your wing and, and were able to help them. And I think we need more people like that because it's a lot. Of, it's the only opportunity that a lot of us have to get into ag. So so thanks for, for like ex- extending yourself and uh, thinking of others in that way, because it's really easy to just keep your head down and focus on your own ranch. You are such a unique producer and that you're, you know, the fiber industry is difficult and there's not a lot of people who have stuck with it, even though it used to be such a huge part of our country. So tell us more about how you get your fiber processed, how it goes from shearing to either yarn or roving or pelts uh, that you sell. Kind of tell us about what that process is and how, you know, what successes and challenges that you've faced in, in selling different types of products. Like, are there ones that do really well and others that don't? Oh, yeah. So um, like I said, my passion kind of started with just like being a home spinner and loving that idea of like making what you wear and kind of connecting the dots and not just wearing something that's like, because we, we are we are in an era of throwaway fashion. Like, just to face it, we basically are told like, oh, your bell bottoms aren't cool anymore. Throw them away, start over again. And if you look at that from an ecological standpoint, that is a horrible idea. Historically, people owned fewer clothing. They were high quality clothing. I met a woman and she said something beautiful. She said, what does what you wear represent what you stand for? And if you look at historical clothing, it wasn't just clothing. It had a cultural reference. It was it was art. It was wearable art. And women were wearing clothing that represented what culture they were from, what story they could tell. I mean, if you look at like a lot of indigenous clothing, beautiful, amazing, deep, amazing traditions of how to make clothing and, and the story that tells like in Guatemala, Every different group and every different indigenous group wears its own like style of weaving and and pattern of weaving and and you look at all over the world and and that was kind of the story being told for clothing but of course <laughs> that has not benefited our larger corporations they love the throwaway idea because then you're gonna go back you're gonna go buy another cheap t-shirt you're gonna put it on so I love that idea of like um, you know connecting deeper to what you wear as well as to what you eat. So as far as the fiber goes, the challenges are keeping sheep clean. (laughs) Sheep are naughty and they're like, oh, let's take a hay bath. And you're like, no, you have to keep the hay out of the wool. So I think um, from a production side, there's definitely like always that question of like, how do you maintain quality 
Um, how do you make sure that your sheep get the right nutrition so they don't get like a broken part in the wool, which can really affect the quality? How do you keep them from taking hay baths? I have no idea. I haven't answered that one yet. So um, <laughs> there are some producers, which I used to do this. They, they actually put blankets on their sheep, kind of like what you see, like if a horse, a show horse has a blanket on, but you know what? It's a lot of work. So I've tried really hard to step away from that, even though sometimes I'm like, oh, these darn sheep and their hay. But um, yeah, so I think that's also too, is like, especially from having a pasture raised bunch, you can't control the nutrition as closely as you can, like if you have a, a feedlot group or, or like a group that's in a corral. And so I think that's one of the challenges I face of like, making sure that I keep that high quality of wool, but I don't have to like change my management completely and become like a, you know, a feedlot operation or something like that. And I think genetics is key. <laughs> I have learned that uh, some sheep just require higher maintenance and my sheep need to be a little lower maintenance because they are a pasture bunch. So I do have to kind of be really selective about who I keep and who I don't keep and what rams I get, making sure that I can keep that kind of management that um, I really believe that sheep should be out on pasture. I don't believe in, I don't believe in keeping them a corral except for like during times of lambing and stuff like that. I think they should be able to like, you know, move around paddock grazing or mob grazing really is what we're kind of doing here. We don't really have paddocks because that's a lot of fencing. <laughs> and uh, I think it's really important for sheep to live that kind of life. So I have to like figure out how to like keep that balance of like high quality wool with that kind of management of um, moving the sheep around. So it's not always easy. <laughs> sometimes if you increase their feed, they'll get a break. And sometimes if you decrease their f food, they'll get, a, they'll get a break. Sometimes if they get a fever, they'll get a break. If they have their babies, they'll get a break. So you have like, I don't know, sometimes, uh, I don't know. I have a headache sometimes thinking about like how to keep them from, you know, ruining their wool. When you do shear, what, what is, do you have a, like an industrial facility that spins that wool and, and processes all that wool for you? Yeah. So I do, I don't shear myself, myself. People ask me that all the time. And I, I, I don't actually know how to shear <laughs> and I don't know if I actually even want to learn how to shear because I know me. And if I cut one or if I hurt one, I'm just going to feel horrible. So I do pay somebody to come and shear them for me. Um, he has learned kind of what I'm looking for. So he slows his operation down a lot, um, to try to do exactly like these high quality fleeces that I want to get off. Um, there is actually, which I think is so cool. And like, I just have to say to all my wonderful fiber art people, I admire you, but there are people who actually want to buy raw fleeces. So a lot of my product just goes straight from sharing the sheep. I put it in a bag, I grade it, and then I sell it online and people will actually buy like the whole bag. And I think that's amazing. Um, because they're basically like taking these hopefully high quality fleeces, that's the goal, <laughs> and turning them into their own product. And I think that's awesome. So that's like my main goal is to get as many of those fleeces off the sheep in the highest condition possible so that I can sell them that way. Because to me, that's, it's the easiest <laughs> because it's, it's just one bag of wool, but it does definitely have to be high quality. So if there's a fleece that's just kind of like, mm, too dirty or compromised in other ways, then I do send it to a mill. I currently am exclusively using Yampa Valley Fiberworks. They're up in Craig, Colorado, and I love them so much. Lorraine is just like the sweetest person ever. And she does all my processing for me. So they are just a family. They're actually a farm as well. So it's a little family operation. 
Uh, they take the raw wool, they they scour it, they card it, they pick it, they turn it into roving, which for those who aren't in the fiber world, roving is wool that's been cleaned and carded, but not spun. So it's just one step away from being yarn or felt. And then they also do uh, a bunch of different yarns for me. I also do some wet uh, felted blankets that they also make for me. And then they send it back to me and then I add color or whatever dye or make it into a product. And I just, I think I, I really like working with Yampa. Um, currently I'm hopeful. I don't want to make any promises I can't keep, but I am actually working with a different wool mill to make some finished products because people often ask me for like, oh, we want to wear a Cactus Hill hat. And I'm like, well, I only knit like five hats a year. And so <laughs> they're not like <laughs> something I'm really selling commercially. It's more like I just have samples of what the wool will look like when it's knitted. And so right now I'm working to make like some rugs and some hats that would be exclusively Cactus Hill wool, but would be like those finished products for maybe people who aren't knitters or spinners or making their own products at home. So so you were saying th that you were just kind of diving into organic grains and raising those alongside sheep. Kind of tell me how it's gone and what your vision is. Like, are you guys planning on using a cover crop and grazing sheep over that cover crop? Or in, even if you're not involving the two, what is your vision or plan for that enterprise? I mean, again, I don't, I feel nervous talking about that one too, because I'm like, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're working on it. Um, work in progress. So, uh, you know, uh, rotations are really good. You don't want to keep the same thing growing over and over and over again. And since we are producing organic hay, alfalfa mixes, you end up with a lot of extra nitrogen. And with that nitrogen, you don't want to just add, you know, probably don't want to go back into alfalfa. Alfalfa does fix nitrogen. It has a uh, rhizomes and on its roots and it basically grabs nitrogen from the air and turns it into usable nitrogen for the plant. And so you don't want to just like put in another alfalfa crop because all that nitrogen is going to be sitting there. And actually there are studies that say if you like have too much nitrogen in a nitrogen fixing plant, it actually makes them lazy and they don't try as hard. So it's really good to switch back into something that's going to use nitrogen, which are like, you know, all your cereals, your grains and corn and all the non-nitrogen fixing plants. So we do, that's kind of our general rotation process is long-term perennial pastures, usually alfalfa, grass mixes, sometimes more grass just because we're grazing sheep and sheep cannot eat a lot of alfalfa if it's green because they will blow up like little balloons and die. So uh, <laughs> we don't want that to happen. So we definitely do a lot of um, grass alfalfa pastures, heavy on the grass, and then moving out of those, depending on how much nitrogen we see, we go into like a, a grain of some sort. We've done oats and now we're just trying out some different wheats and seeing what works and doesn't work. <laughs> but I, I, my vision for that is someday I would like to be able to like mill Cactus Hill uh, grains and have them being sold online and directly to consumers. What are sort of resources, videos, books, you know, training programs? Where do you draw your inspiration and get your technical advice? And do you have different books that you use that you really go to for lambing or for wool production or farming? Do you have any that you can kind of that come to mind? 
Yeah. Um, well, I was very privileged that I did go to go to university and be able to study agriculture. But I do have to say, I don't think you have to study it to be really good at it. I really believe that the biggest thing that I learned in university was how to find information. It wasn't that I actually because actually, I'll be honest with you, I forgot everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, thank you to all my professors who did such a great job. But like my brain erased all that information. I can't remember any of it. But what I did come away with was the ability to find the source. Like go online and don't just read like, I mean, actually, sometimes it can be useful reading opinion papers, like people's opinions on how to do something. Sometimes it can be useful, but like there's so many free um, scientific journals out there where you can like look up studies on how to manage sheep diseases, how to look at feed regimes. You know, there's so many resources that you can find. And I think you can find those really, really good resources that are like peer reviewed um, great information. I've, I've used those a lot, especially managing sheep diseases because sheep are like, <laughs> they're going to get everything. And so I have found that those are extremely useful. Just looking at like, okay, what are the preventative ways to prevent? Like, cause sheep get like CL, they get Campylobacter, they get chlamydia, they get, I mean, we could go on and on and on. They get tons of different types of pneumonias. And so reading those scientific journals on like how to prevent it, what are the best practices? Those are great. And a lot of um, universities have like websites that are just devoted to like kind of um, synthesizing the information, like not just presenting it as a paper, because sometimes that can be like a lot of jargon, but actually presenting it in like kind of like more usable research. And so I love those. I go to those a lot. Um, actually, <laughs> as far as sheep, the British government and also a lot of British universities has like really good information on sheep because that's like um, something they really promote in their country. So like I just Google like diseases and then try to find those like good sources. Um, the other thing, which is ironic, is Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Um, Facebook is also like a great place to find other producers. Like there are, I guarantee for any, any interest you have, there's a group and a lot of them are targeted to helping. So like there's like a for, for sheep, I'm just going to talk about sheep for a sec. There's like a sheep farmer Facebook page where if you go, you can just ask questions like, my sheep is doing this. What do I do? And they can give you some suggestions and it's really great. They try to keep like the trolling down, which is good because it does happen occasionally, which drives me crazy because I'm like, why are you going to this site if you're going to troll people? Like, just don't. Um, but they kind of have like helpful resources on them, what to do, how to problem solve. Um, and they have that for vegetable gardening, for knitting, for spinning, for animal production. So you can find a lot of information like that. Um, I think also if you are going to be an animal producer, a good relationship with a vet is just invaluable. A lot of the vets will offer free information without you having to like pay the money to take an animal in. And so that's kind of how I actually do most of my veterinary care is I don't take the animal in because I'll be honest, it's, it's really a lot. It's hard. You have to leave the farm. I have a kid, you know, it's going to take all day because I have to drive to another town to get to the vet. But a lot of the time I'll just call the vet and be like, can I speak with you for a second? Here's what's happening. This is what I see. What do I do? And they can usually tell you like, oh, that sounds like pneumonia. So try this. So the more you can do at home, the more you can problem solve on your own is the best, but you also don't want to do things wrong. So having that relationship with the vet is like such a great way to problem solve. And I do it all the time. Like, hi, it's Elena. What do I do about this? And a lot of the time they can solve the problem um, on the phone and it saves a lot of time and money. And then I think the people who know 
the most <laughs> are the people who are working with the animal. And so even vets will tell you that <laughs> because they, especially with sheep, uh, the research is, there's not a lot of research being done on sheep because there's not a lot of money behind research for sheep. So a lot of the time vets don't actually know the answer because they just don't have the, enough research to back up what they're trying to say. So talking to a producer, like I always use the example of one year, my sheep um, got white muscle disease, which is like a, it's a selenium deficiency. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? It was like, I only had had sheep for like three or four years. So it was like my very, one of my first years. And I could not figure it out. All my lambs were coming out so weak. They couldn't even walk. I was like researching things, not really finding the information. I texted in a shepherdess friend who's had sheep for years and years and years. She texted me back like in an hour, white muscle. Meanwhile, I had taken like a dead lamb that had died to the vet, which they had sent to CSU to do a tissue sample. And then like two weeks later, they told me it was white muscle. So I think like having, and I'm not saying, I, by the way, but, like I'm not saying anything negative against the vets because the vets have like saved so many lives on my farm. I, I love my vets. My Local vets are just like the most wonderful people I can ever imagine. They've helped me so much. So I'm not saying anything down on them. I'm just saying that like that experience, the vet has probably never seen an actual lamb be born with white muscle, whereas that producer has probably seen it before. And so like the, the vet is going to take a little bit longer because it's like, well, I don't know, but let me use the tools that I have to find the answer. Whereas a producer is going to say, hey, you know what? I've seen this before. This is what this looks like. Um, and so I think like that's been my experience is like connecting with other producers. People like to help, which is wonderful because I have like two sheep farm friends that I have to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, because they have really held my hand and helped me. Like when I had questions, you know, I was able to just text them and be like, what do I do about this? And what do I do about that? And they've like taught me things that I probably couldn't have figured out anymore anywhere else. And also I have to say like my dad growing up on a sheep farm, like he did, he's a genius <laughs> because like sheep often have time, hard time lambing or having a baby. And he, he knows how to solve that. And I just think to myself, if I hadn't had that person, my wonderful dad there, like helping me through that, how many sheep would I have lost? How stressful would it have been to lose those animals if I hadn't had like him to guide me through that process? But that's all he didn't go to college. I mean, these are things that he learned by doing it. And so I think like having that balance of like, we, science is awesome. Let's definitely use science because they've also solved a lot of problems with sheep for me. But then also that knowledge that you can only gain by doing it is such a valuable thing. So yeah, so that's kind of how I, those are some of the resources I think are most useful. As far as books, <laughs> um, I don't read a lot of books. No, but I, I, there are some really good ones on wool. There's the fleece and fiber source book. Um, I definitely love reading soil science books. That's mostly my background with my education. So I definitely enjoy those. And I could give you a whole long list, but for day to day knowledge, I don't use a lot of books. I will be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said for that, that just relational knowledge, you know, and just having that person to go to because, you know, even I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your Facebook comment, because I feel like a lot of people really don't like social media. But for farmers and, and ranchers, oh, my gosh, I have a really small flock of my own, and I'm just getting into it. And boy, I, if you follow you know, if you just look up and you don't even need to find a particular one, it's like find one you like, right. And I've gone on there and just typed in lambing. And then I'll find some group, Lord knows where it is, might be Australia, or New Zealand, but my entire 
Facebook feed right now is just, um, <laughs> it's just use, use vulvas. Like that's like the only thing I see. <laughs> like in January through like J- June, I would say like, I just scrolling and my husband's like, Oh my God, what, what are you looking at? I'm like, well, but the thing I think too is like, there's a value to just seeing all of the other stuff that happens on other people's ranches. First of all, makes you feel not so bad when something happens to you because you're like, okay, it's not just me. This is just the, this is just the industry. This is just how it goes. Right. Uh, And then another thing too, is like, if you look, if you just make it a habit of scrolling through those feeds, clicking on seeing what everyone says, and then being like, Oh my gosh, when I actually do have mastitis issue or, you know, CL or something, I, it's not like the first time I've ever heard of it. You know, I actually have some context to it. So Yeah. And it can be really scary when you find something in your bunch because you're like, oh my gosh, how did I let this happen? How did this disease get here? And having somebody say, hey, I've had this, I've dealt with this. It's not the end of the world is really, really calming. And also I agree with you. That's like a horrible thing. It's like talking to other sheep ranchers is one of the most reassuring things that can happen in my life because I'm not saying this in a bad way. Well, it is a bad thing, but sheep are very good at dying. Like they just are. And I always thought it was because, you know, people didn't try hard enough or because they were up in the mountains or whatever. But you know what, even if you try and you watch every day and you check your sheep and you try so carefully, you'd still lose them. And so talking to somebody who's also lost sheep, who's had their drama, it's like, okay, okay, I'm doing okay. They're they're mostly alive. As long as your sheep are mostly alive, you're doing okay. So I think there's a, there's also like, cause I think when we, we think about resources, it's not just about the knowledge. It's also about like our own confidence because so much of like being a producer is facing those hardships and still getting up the next morning and being like, I can still do this. I'm not going to quit yet. And I think that having that like emotional support can be almost just as valuable as having like that, that, that knowledge support of like people who also are like, yes, this has happened to me and it's stressful and it's horrible. So yeah, I think that's so important and not to be, to be undermined at all is like, we all need to have somebody who supports us, not just through science and through knowledge, but also like emotional. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. When you're young and you're getting into it and you're, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and everything's going really well. And then, you know, it's just something catastrophic comes through. And I think it is really important to just know that, that it is, you know, we've been dealing with these issues for forever. I I was just reading a James Harriet book and, you know, his like country vet stories and all that. And this stuff has been happening. I mean, like this is nothing new. And I think we see the websites for direct to consumer meat and we're like, wow, those animals are all so healthy and happy and, and it's green grass and blue skies every single day. And so I must be doing something wrong, but it is really nice to have that, that sounding board to just be like, Hey, um, I'm, you know, falling apart. Uh, can I, can you at least give me some support here and tell me that I'm not a terrible farmer rancher? You know, I think that's so important for young people. It's everywhere, right? Like if you watch a movie and there's a farm, it's like the most beautiful part of the farm. They don't have junk laying around. There's no dead cow in the ditch. No, definitely not. Everything's beautiful. The sheep and the animals are so friendly and they love the people. And they didn't just like butt the owner in the back and knock him down. You know, so like I think we have this romanticized version of agriculture that I do think like even as a person who grew up on a farm, it can set you up a little bit for failure because you're like, okay, so how did, if if everything's so wonderful, then how did this happen? And I, so I think that like that realistic look at 
because and also the grocery store you go to the grocery store everything's beautiful it's all wrapped in plastic and the meat section is like these gorgeous chops that are all wonderfully shaved and guess what they don't have worms or like whatever it is and so i think like the truth is agriculture is tough and livestock agriculture like anything that you're doing with livestock you're going to lose some there's going to be the worst tragedy like you can ever imagine and that is not something that we're talking about. Like when we talk about farming, we're talking about these beautiful pastoral visions. We're talking about happy little sheep that go trotting off. We're not talking about the one that like stuck its head in the gate and broke its neck or, you know, the one that like couldn't have its babies and, and got sick. You know, like there's so many things that can happen. And, and it like in humans, we also would be the same way, but we have medicine. We don't just like have a baby with no prenatal care. Just think about that. Like sheep and all animals are having these deliveries. They don't have a prenatal care. Nobody knows that that baby's frontward or forward or dead or alive or deformed or anything. And so you're, you're that person on the other end dealing with all this. Like I always have this joke. I'm like, lambing is like 300 stupid mamas <laughs> who didn't have any prenatal care one doctor on call who kind of knows what they're doing <laughs> and you're like, no wonder it's chaos. So I think like having that forgiveness of ourselves and knowing that like, you know, even if you try your best, you're going to lose some, you're going to fail some, especially dealing with agriculture. I don't care if it's livestock or plant production, you're going to have a hailstorm. You're going to have a disease. You're going to have these horrible things that happen. Um, but that doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means that's, that's the business that you're in. And I think those stories, I, I, and I don't want to like, cause I think there's definitely, um, let's just face it. People don't want to hear those stories. <laughs> they don't want to hear that maybe the sheep, something bad happened to this animal and then they ate it or, you know, they don't want to hear that side because I think they want to have this vision of this beautiful pastoral happy animal thing. But I do think that those stories are really important for producers to hear for sure, because we need to hear them, but also for consumers to understand a real relationship with their food instead of this like, you know, beautiful sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> yeah. I think you might have a really cool perspective on this. You have helped animals give so many animals give birth. <laughs> and then you are a mother yourself and you are also pregnant currently. Uh, tell me about what it's like to be a mom in ranching. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, sheep labor screwed me for real labor because I was like, oh, look at those sheep. They just pushed those babies out. I'm going to be like that. And then I like got preeclampsia. I had to be in the hospital for like three days. They like had to induce me. I almost, almost had a C-section and it was like 30, 36 hours of labor or something like that. So I was like, oh man, I should not have looked at sheep as my reference because human labor is, <laughs> I think in some cultures, maybe it is more similar to sheep labor, but in our culture, it is definitely not like that. And especially when you have a serious condition like I had. So that was a funny moment. And like, also, I'm sure that the nurses at the doctors did not appreciate me being like, well, why can't you just like rub my cervix? I do it with the sheep and it makes them dilate. Like they just like, they just are like, no lady, we're not going to do that. I'm so convinced it would work. And I like, I'm still going to like argue my case to somebody that like you can make 
I mean, you can make a sheep dilate. Why couldn't you make a human dilate? So yeah, right. Anyways. You're like, listen, lady. I just I've done it like seven hundred yeah, times. Just like, just let do me it, do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was even like at one point I was like, mom they're gone. Put your gloves on. You could do this for me. And my mom's like looking at me like, no, I am not going to do this for you. So yeah, oh I hope God, that's not, that is so funny. I hope that's not like oh. TMI for the podcast. You can. Oh no, I love it. One. And I love, well, I think that ranchers don't talk about, we don't talk about the women's side of, you know, giving birth and like, you see it, you do it. Like that is such an amazing conversation. Like you actually have that experience of doing that. And I don't think, you know, if, if someone's uncomfortable, then, then, you know, don't get into ranching because it is so it's, it's humans, it's animals. There's a lot of messy stuff and a lot of unfortunate things. And you just gotta talk about it and laugh about it and, and move on and share stories. So I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like learning lambing season, you're just like covered in things that you just can't talk about. You know, you've had all the life, all the parts of life upon you. And you're just like wearing your coveralls in your kitchen, cooking a meal, thinking to Absolutely. yourself, yeah, this is Absolutely. delicious. Yeah. yeah. So you definitely yeah. have to like be okay with uh, all the parts of life. Yeah. You do. Um, you do. Yeah. So how's it like being a mom and like, juggling that and you know like trying not to overexert yourself when you're pregnant but then also like deal with the lambing season and you know balance that time and that energy like tell me tell me all about it well uh, I don't have the answer to that yet because I decided to get pregnant and I'm gonna be lambing and be nine months pregnant so this is gonna be like a giant social experiment and be like how is this going to go? I don't know the answer to that question. I will let you know in a few months. But um, I think, uh, yeah, first of all, my kid is awesome. She's hilarious and full of energy. And she loves being outside, which I just love because I'm just like, oh, yeah, she's my kid. Um, and so I think this last lambing, it was fun. You know, it was fun to have like another person interacting out there. I was a little worried because I actually... Uh, <laughs> I am not a germaphobe. I'm like the opposite of a germaphobe, but I also do know that she'd carry a lot of things. And so I get nervous. I would get nervous occasionally, like, uh, my kid just might have eaten a poop. So uh, I hope there's nothing in it. Yeah. So I think, um, and especially like being pregnant, sheep can actually give you things that can cause you to abort. You can get chlamydia, you can get campylobacter. So I think um, I've had a campylobacter outbreak in my sheep. So I think I always like carry that knowledge of like, I have to be very careful. It is a farm. It's not a hospital, but I also have to be aware that like, you know, these things can be passed to humans. They can be very dangerous. You can get Q fever from sheep that can be life threatening. So I think um, trying to manage that, like be a farmer, but also be careful. Um, you also don't want to get hurt, like physically hurt by them running you over or something like that. That's that's where you have to be picky. Do not keep sheep that are mean. Just don't. Don't even do it. It's not worth it. Some people do it. I'm like, no, I'm not. If anyone knocks me over, you're out. You're out tomorrow. Like you don't even get a second chance. It's just like you're out. So yeah, don't knock. Don't be mean to Elena because she does not tolerate that. Um, so I think like as far as balancing being a mom, it is hard. You know, it's it's really hard because you know, your kid isn't going to be like, oh, you're especially your baby kid, you know, your two year old, which is what she she's almost two right now. She's not going to be like, oh, mom's really busy today. I'm going to just uh, hang out and play with my toys. Oh, no, she's going to be like, mom's really busy today. I'm having a meltdown and maybe another meltdown. And so there is kind of like that. Um, you have to like feel how do I say 
I mean, I want to be a good mom, so I want to be attentive to her needs, but then you also have to manage your own needs. And it is, it is a hard balance. Um, there are days where I'm just like, Oh my gosh, somebody come get this child, please. I just need some sanity. Give me 10 minutes. I just need to send an email. She Hulk smashed my computer. And then, yeah. So there's definitely like, there's days. Yeah, it's so real. And I think, you know, it's like, again, with the with the images and everywhere is like, here's me and my kids in a field and there's cows and it's sunshine. And it's great, you know, and I, I just, I, I don't know why I just lo- I like to dig into the into the real, you know, like, I don't I don't think it's really benefiting anyone to be to just tell that same story over and over. And I and I like that um, you've shared like, yeah, sometimes it is so frustrating. But also, what it absolute privilege it is to have to have them raised on your family's ranch and like they get to be outside they don't have to you know sit in a suburban house playing video games all summer they're out there in the ditches you know helping you out and and that's what that's going to be their childhood so that's that's awesome yeah I think like I feel like it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to be a stay-at-home I mean I'm not a stay-at-home mom I'm a working mom who has a kid at home but um I think it's such a privilege that I get that opportunity because I have had to in the past like even when Amalia was born and little, I actually did have a part-time job and it was so hard for me to like leave her at daycare and realize that like, um, well, actually I didn't leave her at daycare. I left her with my mom, but, uh, we are a family farm, but, um, just kind of like that hard part of like realizing that you don't have time to raise your own kid. And I didn't have a kid to not raise it on my own. And I, I think there's like this, this honor of being a mother, but also working and showing her that side of like, um, you know, what we're doing every day, and she'll be part of that as she gets older, then um, yeah, but I do have a funny story about like parenting on a farm. (laughs) She was a year, yeah, a year and a month, a year and a month. And I go out there and one of my sheep prolapsed. It was horrible. It was like the worst prolapse ever. It sounds horrible. And I'm sorry if it's TMI, I had to put the U down in the end. It was it was a it was an intestinal prolapse. It was first I've ever seen and it was horrible. So anyway, so I go out there. <laughs> Sorry, th- there is a funny part of the story. That's not the funny part of the story. So I go out there, this use in distress. Um, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong because I was very confused about what I was seeing. So I'm calling the vet and talking to the vet and I put my baby down thinking she's in a snowsuit. She's got gloves on. Like what could she possibly do? So I just put her down just for a second. She takes without her hands, she just reaches over and just perfectly puts a poop in her mouth and comes up <laughs> and looks at me. And I'm like, ah! So anyway, so those are like some of the parenting moments that you have when you're like trying to multitask with like a very high need situation, which is a sheep in distress, and another very high need situation, which is a baby who does not understand no. So yeah, so there's definitely um, like at the time where I say I am honored and privileged to be her mother and to be taking care of her every day, there is the other side, which it is also challenging sometimes because she does not know my schedule. I don't know her schedule. And sometimes we just have to like negotiate out who's, you know, are the sheep going to take charge or is she taking charge? Um, yeah. So, yeah. And the next one coming, it's going to be two of them. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you do. It seems like you have uh, family support there on the on the ranch. So that's really, I think, unique. A lot of people don't have, you know, we've kind of culturally sort of dissolved that idea of having the whole family around. And I, you know, that's why it's so hard. It, it has always been this hard. But you know, we've always had you know, the the 
the generations in the same household are nearby to come help out and lend a hand. It's, it's, it shouldn't all be on the mother, you know, or the mother and the father, you know. Yeah, I think like that's such a Western society thing of like, the, you know, there is that saying, right? It takes a village to raise a child. But then in our culture, we've decided that it takes one person to raise a child, one working person. And um, I think that like, I am so grateful that my family, you know, I think that there is that part of the tr the tradition of the Hispanic culture of like, our family has all stuck together. Sometimes they drive me crazy. And I'm like, ah. but then I'm also really grateful that I have this opportunity to be like, you know, isn't it great that I can take my kid right now? She's with my mom and with my sister. And it's so wonderful to know that that's where she is, especially in a pandemic. Oh my gosh. I don't, I all you moms out there, like, wow, you are amazing. But I can imagine the stress of taking your kid to daycare every day right now. Like, I, I don't even want to be there because, yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm very fortunate, very grateful for that, that my family has the generations living all within a, a very small area. I don't know much about it, but I would venture to say the the bacteria on the surfaces inside of a daycare are not too much worse than the inside of, inside of a sheep farm. So, <laughs> oh God. you might be right. You might be right. All that poop. I mean, it's got to be building her immune system. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, she'll be fine. Hey, you were raised on it. You you, you turned out great. So look, it's, yeah, it's going to be a fine. Crazy. Only a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my last question is, you know, you came from a generational ranch, but you so you still have the experience and a lot of colleagues too of folks that have, are just getting into ranching and especially um, BIPOC people, women, people who don't fit the mold of a, you know, traditional rancher out here, you know, like there's a lot of white dudes and it seems a little unapproachable for some people. So tell me more about, you know, if you can, if you had any advice for young people, um, especially in those groups, like how to find success and find resources and make it in agriculture. Yeah, it is definitely real. Like, um, I, I have lost ag jobs because of being a woman. Like I'm, it, it's not like prejudice. It's for reals. And, um, I think like that was something I definitely grew up with, uh, you know, being told like I was a ditch writer, which is somebody who like maintains the ditch, um, for years. And then basically one day the boss was like, you're not strong enough for this job. And that was the end. I had done the job for like seven years and so, because you're a woman, he literally said those words. He was like, you're a woman. I just don't think you're strong enough for this job. And even though I'd done the job for how many years? So I have, I have faced that, like he, the same guy, sorry, dude, not trying to talk bad about you, but he also like told my dad, when are you going to sell me your farm? Because you don't have anyone to run it. My dad's like, well, my daughter's going to run it. So there definitely is like a very strong culture of like telling women and people of color and anyone that just isn't the norm that they are not good enough to be there. And I think like, first of all, what the hell, man, do you know, like globally more women raise food than men and most of them are women of color. And so I really believe that that is just like such a myth of our time. Who says that you're not strong enough? It's not all about brawn and you know, being able to lift this heavy thing. A lot of it is about learning how to work smarter, doing things so you don't have to like lift all the crazy stuff. And so I think, um, I don't know. I feel like that is just like something that just drives me crazy because I also feel like I've worked with men and women on the farm and I'm not trying to say a sexist comment here, but women are really good, very intuitive. 
And I would rather work, especially in a lambing shed, I find women to be more helpful than men because they are more likely to pick on, pick up on diseases, to pick up on weak, like if an animal isn't acting correctly. Um, also, our hands are smaller. And guess what? The sheep really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. They're like, get your giant hand out of my butt and really appreciate that women have some smaller arms, especially like it's actually more like the upper arm too, because like the hand isn't really like the biggest part. It's actually like once you get in deeper. So I would have to say that women are probably better at delivering than men, especially in smaller animals, because they're just don't have their just their bodies are smaller. So, you know, I, I just think that whole like stereotype thing is, is something that we have to work on changing from within. It's also kind of hurting us in agriculture anyway, because that's why farmers get such a bad reputation for being like backwards old people. And, and we're really not like there's so many progressive farmers out there, men, women, I don't care, color, everything. And so I think that like having that idea that like some people aren't allowed because they're not whatever the stereotype is, is just, it's actually hurting us. It's hurting our reputation. Um, it's hurting us because we're not getting those other perspectives. Being from a multicultural background, being a woman, being a person, a BIPOC person. I mean, those things offer so much perspective that we need. Like right now we need solutions. We don't need the same old thing. We've had the same old thing and look where it's getting us. We've got climate change. We've got erosion. We've got eutrophication of waterways. We need people who think out of the box. And I don't know how else to do that other than getting some more diversity and more opinions that aren't from that like same old school kind of mentality. Um, so yeah, so as far as like how to ignore them, <laughs> I mean, there is the imposter syndrome. I'm going to be honest with you. I have struggled with this my whole life because of being a woman because of being Hispanic because of whatever. And I think that like, you know, that's something that we have to find within of that idea of like, well, who's telling you that you don't belong here? Like, is it you telling you, you don't belong there? Is it somebody else? Like whose voices really matter? And I find that the people whose voices really matter are usually the ones that are supporting you. Um, and the ones that aren't supporting you, and maybe that you're listening to are the ones that like, you probably shouldn't listen to, like, they're not the quality people to listen to. I think it's kind of like, what is that saying? Those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't mind. So you're gonna find listen to the voices that support you, because they're probably looking out for your self interest. And also somebody that's like, you know, somebody worth listening to, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one because I, I understand like it's it's real and and it is unfortunate that some doors are closed to um, to many and that and that that's not cool. That's not OK. You know, yeah, I found too. you know, it sounds like you're saying find the support where you have it. And even if it's not the entire community, you know, you you will always find some. And we actually our last podcast, um, Kate. Mannix was, that's exactly her message too. Is she was saying like, there's always some allies, like you will find them if you look hard enough and it's like, start there and then work your way out and work your way and, and find networks that work for you instead of, you know, going to the traditional route saying, Oh, I don't fit here. And then leaving, you know? So I think that's really beautiful is like using other people in the community. We're not competing with each other. <laughs> there is so many people to clothe and feed in this nation. We are, and especially with using the practices, regenerative practices, like not a whole lot of competition. I think it's worth it to make, make those bonds. Yeah. And I think like, you know, I think it's kind of like, um, 
anyway, you know, we, in this country, we, we, we love freedom of speech and that's wonderful, but like, we don't always honor that, like with freedom of speech comes the responsibility with what you're saying. And so if people are saying something that isn't responsible, that isn't like taking care of each other, that isn't honoring somebody else, then is that somebody that like, do you have to respect their right to say that over your right to feel good about yourself? And so I do think that like, you know, it's about giving air, giving, I don't know, giving time to the voices that matter. And I I mean, you're always going to have haters. I have tons of haters. (laughs) I really do. Like within my own community, I got haters, but I'm just like, you know what? why am I going to listen to your opinion of me? Like that is not the opinion that really matters. Now, my friend who I care about and who helps me run my farm, I'm going to listen to his opinion or her opinion of me because that's a voice that I think matters. So, and I, and I'm not trying to say that and like (laughs) ignore voices, but just of like, there are always going to be haters, you know, there are always going to be haters. And I think the tragedy of like people who want to put down other people's dreams is that when they when they win, when they actually deter you from following your dreams, then that's, that's, that's such a tragedy. I mean, I have family members who told me that I'm crazy for wanting to farm, but I just realized like, if I listen to that person and I don't pursue this dream, then I'm going to be looking back in years and being like, oh man, what a bummer. You got to find the people that are in your corner and the ones that are not in your corner, you know, okay, sure. Maybe they have something to say to you, but don't give them power to, to decide for you. Thank you so much. That is, that is so helpful. I mean, you, it's like, I think people get put into categories of like young people who come from generational farms and young people who don't, but gosh, it's like, there's still so many barriers for both. There's still so many, I mean, you face issues, you face the same issues, but then you face your own set of issues as well. So I think that is super helpful. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, sharing your experience as a mom, as a a BIPOC person, a person who speaks Spanish, a person who's going against the grain in their community. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast and I appreciate all your answers. Again, thank you so much, Elena, for being on our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about her farm, you can visit cactushillfarm.com. And if you'd like to keep up with her fiber business and quite adorable family, you can follow her on Instagram or Facebook at Cactus Hill Farm. Looking for a job in regenerative agriculture? Kibira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through our podcast and our monthly newsletter. This month, we have a couple of opportunities to share from the Northwest. In Oregon, applications are now open for Rogue Farm Corps Sustainable Farm Internships and Apprenticeships. Participants gain mentorship and experience at a partner host farm, supported by a series of in-person and virtual classes, farm tours, discussions, and networking organized by Rogue Farm Corps and their partners. Host farms provide wages or an educational stipend, and some offer housing or food as well. Full-time, part-time, full-season, spring-through-fall, and short-season positions are available. Host farm and position information can be found on RFC's website. That's www.roguefarmcorps.org. In Cascade, Idaho, Cabarton Ranch is looking for a full-time summer ranch hand to help with irrigating and fencing. Cabarton Ranch is a cow-calf operation with a herd of about 220 head. 
They custom graze outside cattle in the summer and run a portion of their in-house herd on a public grazing allotment. Their family and ranch put a high value on land stewardship and low-stress livestock handling. The ideal candidate has a strong desire to learn about agriculture and a willingness to experience ranching from the ground up. The right person will also have a strong work ethic and the physical ability to do manual labor outdoors for long hours. The job starts mid-April and will last through mid-October. For more details or to apply, please email your resume to Monica Goki. That's M-O-N-I-C-A dot G-O-K-E-Y at gmail.com. Every month, we include job postings in our monthly newsletter. So if you don't already receive our monthly newsletter, visit kaviracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or to read any of our previous ones, visit kaviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Do you have a job opportunity that you'd like us to include in our monthly newsletter? Send it to newagrarian at kaviracoalition.org so we can share it with our network. Hi, my name is Zach Withers and I farm in central New Mexico at Polk's Valley Farm. And my tidbit, what I wish I had known five years ago, um, that the idea of the fully independent, fiercely independent, self-sufficient, uh, self-contained farm is a myth. Uh, real farming happens in community. You don't have to do everything yourself. Do what you like, do what you're good at do what makes sense in the context of the place you're farming and be connected to a community of people that uh, fill in the blanks. You're stronger together than you ever will be alone. For listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts to become a sponsor or Patreon supporter. We'd like to thank Kavira staff members Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Sanders, Leah Potterwaite, Tyler Eshelman, and Tafari Finn for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. And we're grateful to our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. Thank you for listening. <laughs>